Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Bibles to Isaiah, not John, Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9. There was a study that came out a few years ago exploring the beliefs of Americans and how they related to the paranormal. So I'm going to give you some statistics of how Americans view this whole issue of paranormal experiences. So 71% that were surveyed said they had had a paranormal experience. 34% believed in ghosts. 56% believe ghosts are spirits of dead people. 41% believe in ESP. 55% believe that psychics can truly bring healing through the powers of the mind. Now, I can go on and on and give you more documentation, but you know we live in a culture where people are very fascinated with the paranormal, with metaphysical, with spiritualism, all of these types of things. And here's the reason why, I think. During times of uncertainty, during times of insecurity, during troubling times, people tend to gravitate towards things that they think will give them security, will give them peace, will give them happiness, will give them a sense of security. We just want that. As fallen human natures, we want to have peace. We want to have security. We want to have, to have joy, happiness. And so one of the ways that people can, can try to get that is to turn to government. They can go to the government and say, if we just had the right president, if we just had the right Congress, if we just had the right Supreme Court, if everything was just the way we wanted it in our government, then I would truly be at peace. And you've seen our nation there are those that are freaking out that Donald Trump is president. And probably there would be others that would freak out if Hillary Clinton was president. No matter who's in power, there's those people that just want to have security in the government giving them ultimate sense of peace and prosperity. For others, it may not be the government. It may be spiritualism, metaphysical, New Age mysticism, horoscope. I got to go to all of these spiritualistic type of avenues to try to find true peace and security. Whether it's going to the government for security, whether it's going to the psychic friends hotline for security, nothing is new under the sun. This is exactly what God's people during the Old Testament times were doing under the leadership of King Ahaz. Now, you may not know your Old Testament history, and I'm not going to give you a big Old Testament history lesson, but King Ahaz was a king of the southern kingdom. 
Israel had split into two nations. There was the northern kingdom, there was the southern kingdom. Ahaz was the king of Judah, which was the southern kingdom. He was a wicked king. If you go back to 2 Kings chapter 16, you find out that he burned his own children in the fire to a pagan god. He was instrumental in basically reforming all of the religion in Israel to paganism. He was a wicked king. And here's the situation. During his reign, Judah, the southern kingdom, is feeling some pressure because there are two enemies from the north that are coming down and attacking Judah. Israel, which is their brothers, the the divided kingdom, the northern territory, Israel, and the nation of Syria. Those two nations are putting pressure on Judah, causing a lot of panic, causing a lot of stress. So Ahaz is the king. Instead of inquiring of the Lord, instead of praying, instead of going to the religious leaders of the day saying, what should we do? He basically gives up on all of that and says, I'm going to form an alliance with the king of Assyria. Assyria was a violent and pagan nation that Israel had no business having political ties with. So he takes money from the temple treasury to basically buy the protection of Assyria to help him fend off these invading armies. It was a time of darkness. It was a time of gloom and doom. And people were looking in all the wrong places for peace, for security, and for joy. So I want to show you where the people were looking. So you have your Bible open to Isaiah chapter 9. I want you to go up into chapter 8, just a few verses above that, in verse 19, through the end of the chapter, and this will give us the context for Isaiah chapter 9. This is what's going on in the southern kingdom of Judah during the reign of King Ahaz. This is what the people are doing. So let's pick up in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And when they look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. What are the people doing? They're looking to spirit mediums for answers. 
They're going to necromancers. They're, they're dabbling in the occult to try to find answers to why these things are happening. And God says it's going to be a day of doom and gloom if you do that. And they're not getting the answers they want from the occult, so they begin to curse God. They begin to yell at God. And then they go into this time of hunger and famine and anguish and darkness because they are frustrated that things aren't going well for them. They're looking in all the wrong places. And this is where, in this nation of disobedient occultic sin, God speaks hope. God gives a message of grace. And we have chapter 9, which is the most prophetic passage in the Old Testament about the birth of Jesus. So, Chapter 9's prophetic announcement about Jesus being born comes right in the midst of a nation that's rebellious, a nation that's involved in the occult, a nation that's in darkness. And isn't it just like God to look down upon sinners and say, you're sinners, and I know that, but I'm going to speak hope and truth and grace into your situation and give you the gospel. It's the same today. Those of us in darkness, those of us in rebellion, those people walking in sin, God has a message for you today. So let's read. For us, a child is born. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Sometimes we just read this out of context and we don't know what's going on historically. And, and that's what's going on historically. The nation is in distress. So let's read together Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness... On them light has shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here's the main point of this passage of Scripture. You can only find true joy, peace, and freedom by submitting to Jesus as your king. That's the only place you're going to find true joy, peace, and freedom is when you and I submit to Jesus as our king. 
Now, the people are in anguish. The people are in deep darkness. They're bitter. They're angry at God. They're cursing God. They're they're, they're consulting spirit mediums. They're putting their hope in politics. They've tried all these places to find joy, to find hope, to find security, to find peace, and they're in darkness. But God makes an announcement in verse 1 that those days are over. He says in verse 1, there will be no gloom for who? For, he, for her who was in anguish. Now, there are some immediate prophecies that come true for the nation of Israel in the book of Isaiah in, histor- in, his, in history. But when you step back and look at the grand scale, you realize that these prophecies are for us in the birth of Jesus. And so God's going to promise deliverance. God's going to come in the midst of their sin, the midst of their rebellion, the midst of their anguish, the midst of their darkness, and he's going to announce the birth of the Messiah as the only one that can bring them hope and freedom and peace and joy. He's going to promise to them a coming Messiah. And from this passage of Scripture, we see five blessings that come from the birth of Christ. So as we approach Christmas this year, I want us to think about five blessings that you and I receive from the birth of Jesus that emerge directly from this text. Here's the first. First of all, Christ's birth deepens our joy. Christ's birth deepens our joy. Look at verses 2 and 3. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. Excuse me. It says to here the people were walking in darkness. Now, when the Bible talks about walking, it talks about your lifestyle, the totality of who you are. These people's lifestyle was embroiled in total darkness, anguish, sin, rebellion. And God says, I'm going to shine a great light. In the midst of your doom and gloom and darkness and in the midst of your occultic rebellion, I'm going to shine a light. On them, the light has shone. Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, obviously in the Old Testament, God was their light. But we know, studying the Gospel of John, that Jesus made that famous announcement in John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is coming as this light that's shining in the darkness. It's going to be Jesus. The baby born in Bethlehem will grow up to be the man to die on our cross. And he is the light of the world shining into the darkness. And by his death, he's going to rescue us from that darkness. Colossians 1 13 through 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us 
to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, here's the promise of light. When you know that light is coming in, shining in the darkness, it deepens your joy. The word joy or gladness or rejoice shows up four times in this passage of Scripture. Verse 3, you've increased the joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, Isaiah gives two illustrations from Israel's life that would bring them great joy. One is the harvest. It was probably the Feast of Weeks. You notice where it says there, they will be like joy at the harvest. Back in Deuteronomy 16, it talked about the Feast of Weeks. It was a great time of of joy, remembering God's deliverance of them out of slavery in Egypt. And so when they think about harvest, it would be a great time of joy. Greater than than the Feast of Weeks would be the coming of Jesus. And then it talks about when they get divide the spoil from war, when they go in and conquer an enemy and get the spoils of war, it would bring greater joy than that. So in the life of Israel, the two greatest things that would bring the greatest joy, harvest and the end of war, Jesus coming as the light is going to be greater than all of that. He's going to deepen our joy. One of the greatest blessings of Jesus Christ being our Savior is that He deepens our joy. John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Joy. What is joy? What is joy? I think you know it when you don't have it. But what is joy? Jesus has come to give us not just a little bit of joy, but that our joy may be full. Joy, again, it's something that's deeply seated in our hearts. It's something that Christ alone puts there. It's this sense of contentment, this sense of security, this sense of freedom that only comes from Christ regardless of your circumstances because you know He's good and He's sovereign. Why do we sing joy to the world? The Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. He's come to deepen your joy. And as Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Where do you find your strength? Where do you find your joy this Christmas in the birth of Jesus who's come to deepen that joy? He's come to deepen that joy, to increase that joy. So that's blessing number one we see from the birth of of Christ. He comes to deepen your joy. Here's number two. Christ's birth destroys the bonds of slavery. Christ's birth destroys the bonds of slavery. Look at verse four. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. You see words there like yoke, oppressor, rod, staff. This would bring back images of Israel being in Egypt under harsh taskmasters that were beating them. Also, in just the next chapter, we're going to find out that the nation they turn to for help, Assyria, is going to 
to put them into slave labor. They're going to be beaten as slaves. They're going to be oppressed by the nation of Assyria. But it says there that God has broken the yoke of slavery. Literally there in the Hebrew, God has shattered it. God has shattered it. Like in the days of Midian, when, when, when Gideon took the army, that small army against a, the, the army of Midian. Now, in the immediate context here, it's talking about physical slavery, physical oppression. God's going to remove the slavery and the yoke of oppression of Assyria off the nation of Israel, and they will no longer be physically beaten and tortured and enslaved. But, spiritually, what do we know sin and the devil do to us before we become believers in Jesus? We are spiritually in bondage. We are spiritually enslaved. And what has Christ come to do? He's come to destroy that, to shatter the yoke of slavery that is holding us in the bonds of sin. The writer of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews 2, 14-15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, this is talking about Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You may not know this, but before Christ saved you, you were in fear of death, you were in fear of guilt, you were in lifelong slavery, you were in bondage to sin, you were in bondage to the devil, you were in bondage to all types of, uh, of rebellion, and Christ has come to, to shatter those yokes, to, to shatter those chains, to, to break you out of the prison cell of sin so that you can be free. So think about how these two things work together. Your joy is deepened when you realize the yoke of slavery has been destroyed. Those two things work together. Christ has come to deepen your joy. And how does he deepen your joy? He breaks the chains of sin that hold you in death. So he's deepened your joy and he's destroyed the slavery to sin. But here's the third thing. Third, Christ's birth declares ultimate peace. Ultimate peace. It, he, his birth declares ultimate peace. Now look at verse 5. You may not quite understand what's going on in verse 5, but let me explain it to you. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, what's going on in this passage of Scripture? They're burning boots, and they're burning battle garments stained in blood. If you go back to the book of Joshua, you find out that that was Israel's practice when they totally destroyed an enemy. They would burn their boots, and they would burn their, 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 um, their uniforms as a way visibly to show that the enemy has been totally destroyed. We're burning everything down to the boots and to the garments. And so the picture here is total victory over an enemy and thus ultimate peace that results from the total vanquishing of an enemy. And what has Christ done in his birth and in his death? He has totally destroyed the enemy. And by doing so, 
He's brought ultimate peace. I read this earlier when we did the Advent candle. Romans chapter 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have peace with God through Jesus. We have access directly to the Heavenly Father through Jesus. How has He accomplished this peace? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 13-14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. Do you see the imagery here? You were far off. You were in bondage to sin. You were estranged from God. You were walking in darkness. You've been totally in a a sinful state of rebellion. And what has God done through Christ? Through His shed blood, Jesus himself is our peace. He deepens our joy. He destroys death. He destroys guilt. He destroys sin. And he declares to us, there's an ultimate end to the war. There is peace. You have peace with God. Joy, peace, freedom. One of the things we need to be thankful for this Christmas and just think about this. Think about the imagery. You who were far off have been brought near. Most of us can give testimony of how we were once far off. We were far away from God. And God brought us near through Jesus. And because Christ is our peace, we're no longer under condemnation. We're no longer under guilt. We're no longer under fear. We, we live in the freedom of what it means to have our sins forgiven. We have joy. We have freedom. We have peace. But here's the fourth thing that we see in this passage of Scripture. Christ's birth demonstrates His powerful deity. This is a prophetic announcement about the birth of Christ. Look there in verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Now, is this just any child? Just any generic child being born. Who's the child? Who's the son being born? Well, Isaiah has already told us this just a few chapters earlier. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Back there in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that Mary, the virgin, would conceive, give birth to Jesus. His name would be Emmanuel. What does the angel tell Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 through 23? She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So, this is the birth of Christ, the the virgin birth, God with us, Emmanuel. And what Isaiah gives are four titles for Jesus. Four titles of deity. 
four titles that prove that Jesus is not just any Joe Blow kid being born in Bethlehem, but that he is God come in the flesh to be born to take away our sins. These are titles of his kingly Messiah Godhead. Four titles. Here's title number one. Jesus will be the wonderful counselor. Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called, here's the first title, Wonderful Counselor. Literally in the original Hebrew, the wonder of the one who counsels. Now, how is Jesus a counselor? I thought the Holy Spirit was the counselor. Well, this is Old Testament. John hasn't been written yet. But think about this. What was the one thing that Jesus said over and over again almost 20 times in the Gospels? Follow me. You want to know how Jesus counsels, how he's the wonderful counselor? He tells you where to go. What do you do when you go to a counselor? Why do you go to a counselor? I need help. I don't know where to go. I don't know what direction to go. I need help. I need encouragement. I need coaching. I need some counsel. I need some direction. I need a shepherd. I need someone to lead me. Well, guess what? Jesus is the greatest of all the counselors. Nothing against counselors. We get a lot of counselors, college counselors here. You guys do a great job, but the ultimate counselor is Jesus. So if you want direction, you want to know where to go, you want to know where the purpose is found in your life, you follow Jesus as the wonderful counselor. He is the one who leads the sheep. John 10, 3-4, we saw this just a few weeks ago. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he's brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. As the wonderful counselor, Jesus is the only one worthy to be followed. Okay, what's the second title? Title two, Jesus is our mighty God. Or literally, valiant warrior. Do you want someone to fight your battles for you, or do you want to fight your own battles? I want somebody to fight my battles for me. Why? Because I'm a weakling. That's right, I said it, I'm a weakling. Anybody else here a weakling? Spiritually? Okay, some of us men are like, no, I'm not a weakling. I can take some guys. No, spiritually. We are all weak. We are frail. We face enemy after enemy. Jesus is the mighty warrior, the mighty God. Fight your battles. He defends you. He's your shield. He's your fortress. He's the one that you can put all of your trust in to be your strength. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He's the great and mighty God. Psalm 24, 8. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Now, these Old Testament images are of God, Yahweh, being the mighty battle, the mighty warrior that would fight the battles for Israel. But this is talking about Jesus. Jesus coming as a little baby being born in Emmanuel is going to be the one who's the mighty God, the mighty warrior, the one to fight your battles. Yes, Jesus came as the Prince of Peace to be born in a manger, but let me remind you of something. He's coming back on a white horse wielding a sword of vengeance, and he's going to right all the wrongs as our mighty warrior. 
So not only is he our wonderful counselor that leads us, he's our mighty warrior that fights the battles for us. Title number three. Jesus is our eternal protector. Now, let's just deal with this text. Everlasting Father. Now you're thinking, now wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. I thought God the Father was the Father. Jesus is not the same person as the Father. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's the divine Son. So is this passage of Scripture teaching that Jesus is the same person as the Father? No, that's modalism. That's a heresy. This is not giving us a theological treatise telling us that Jesus is the Father. Why is the term everlasting Father used there? Father, to that original audience, a father was the leader of the house. He was the protector of the house. He was the one who lovingly would care for, lead, guide the family. So when it talks about everlasting Father, it's more that Jesus is the protector. He's the leader. He's the one that takes charge. He's the one that cares for us. Psalm, 50, or Psalm 5, 11 through 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favors as with a shield. So, so the idea of Jesus being everlasting Father doesn't mean he's the same person as the Father. It's not, a, it's not messing with the doctrine of the Trinity. It's more of a metaphor for Jesus being a protector. Now think about these imageries here. He's a protector. He fights your battles. He's your shepherd. He leads you. He guides you. He protects you. He defends you. What's the fourth title? He is our Prince of peace. Literally, captain of peace. Now, what's the irony? How is Jesus going to bring peace? Most of the time, peace comes after some king comes in and wipes everybody out and forces everybody into submission. How is Jesus going to accomplish peace? How is he going to be the king of peace, the prince of peace? How is he going to do that? He's going to be born in an animal trough, He's going to live despised and rejected by men, and eventually he's going to die on the cross, a cruel death, as the Lamb of God. How is he going to bring peace? Well, Isaiah later on tells us this. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. His death's going to bring peace. What did the angels announce to the shepherds at the birth of Christ? Luke 2.14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is well pleased. Later on in the Gospel of John, John 16.33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He's our wonderful counselor. In other words, he shepherds us into where we need to go. 
He's our mighty God in the sense that he fights our battles. He's our everlasting protector in the sense that he's our refuge. He's our, he's our ever-present help in time of trouble. He's our strength, and he is our prince of peace. He grants us not only objective peace with God, but he puts that peace of Christ, that peace deep into our hearts. So how does this relate to you? If you need guiding or direction this morning, Jesus is your counselor. If you need defending or you need help to fight the battles, Jesus is your mighty God. If you need protection, if you need a refuge, if you need a place to to climb into, to, to get surrounded by the protective arms of someone that loves you, Jesus is your eternal protector. If you need peace that passes understanding, Jesus grants you that peace eternally as the God-man, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, God in the flesh. But there is one fifth blessing that comes from this passage of Scripture. Fifth, Christ's birth demands our allegiance to his kingship. It demands allegiance. Yes, he's going to be born as a baby in a manger. And yes, he's going to die as the Lamb of God for our sins. But he's going to rise again, and he's going to ascend back to heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father right now as King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's going to come back. And it demands our allegiance. Notice what verse 7 says. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. He's going to rule. He's going to reign. He's going to establish justice and righteousness. He's going to reign from the throne of David. David was given a prophecy in 2 Samuel 7, 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Jesus will come in the line of David. He will rule as the king of David. He rules, he reigns. This demands our allegiance. It demands us to bow before Jesus as our king, to know that, yes, he is our protector. He is our our, our joy. He gives us peace. He's freed us with his cross, but he also is the Lord of lords and king of kings. But... There's one final exclamation point. There's a little postscript that God puts on this passage of Scripture to let us know he means business. Why is God going to do all this? Look at that very last line in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Why is God going to do this? Why is God going to send Jesus to be the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace to deliver us? Why is God going to do this? Because God is most concerned with God. God has a passion for His glory. Notice it says the zeal of the Lord will do this. What is zeal? That means passion. That means God's passion for His glory, God's passion for His name. As a matter of fact, the Bible in Exodus 34, 14 says this, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God's jealous? Yes, He's jealous for His glory, and He's jealous for His people. So, why does God deepen your joy? Why does God do that? Why does God destroy 
the yoke of slavery? Why does God declare to you peace? Why does God give Jesus to us as the Prince of Peace and all these wonderful titles? Why does, why does God do all this? Because God has a burning passion for his glory to be on display, which is for the good of his people. Notice Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The reason God does all this is because God has a passion for his name. God has a passion for his glory. God has a burning desire that all people would bow before his son and worship him. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, the question then becomes, is that your passion? Is your desire to find ultimate joy, peace, and freedom by submitting to Jesus as the King? Is your first and foremost concern this this Christmas the glory of God? A passion for the glory of God and for His name. You see, this is more than just Bible trivia. This is really more than just the birth of the announcement of Christ's coming. This is life and death. You notice what's talked about here in this passage of Scripture? It's a difference between walking in darkness or walking in light. It's a difference between walking in slavery or walking in freedom. The difference between walking in bitterness or walking in joy. Peace or warfare. Freedom or bondage. And Jesus has come to bring ultimate freedom, joy, peace. And we must submit to him. So it means that we must be enthralled with Jesus. We must be engaged with Jesus. We must find him to be our all in all, our joy and our treasure. So here's some questions you may want to ask yourself this Christmas. This, this is Christmas week. This Christmas, has Jesus deepened your joy? Just ask yourself that. Is, is Jesus deep? Is your joy deeper this Christmas? Question number two. Has Jesus destroyed the yoke of slavery? Are you, are you still in sin? Are you still in the shackles and bondage of of sin? Or has Jesus released you from that? And if he has, have you praised him? Have you thanked him? Are you praising him for for freeing you? Are you experiencing the peace of Christ in your heart? Are you believing that Jesus is God in the flesh and that he is all of those wonderful titles, your wonderful counselor and your mighty God? And are you submitting to him as King of kings and Lord of lords? There's a lot of places that we can look for peace. There's a lot of places we can look for joy. A lot of places we can look for freedom. And the sad thing about the human condition is that we are so prone to go find those, those, those places to give us ultimate peace. I mean, the nation of Israel was looking at the occult. Nobody here is going to raise their hand and say, I, I went, I went to... I, Hopefully nobody will raise their hand and say, I, I consulted a Ouija board this past week or I, you know, I went to my spirit medium. Hopefully you don't do that. So we may not go to the occult to find strength. But what, where do you go to find your security? Do you go to your stocks and bonds? Do you look to the government? Do you look to a relationship? 
Do you look to your family? I mean, these may be good places you look. Where are you putting your ultimate stock, hope, trust in? If it's something less than Jesus, it will always fail you. The only one that will never fail you, that will give you ultimate peace, joy, freedom, is Jesus. And because he came to be born as the Prince of Peace, he demands our allegiance. And we must bow to him. We must submit to him as king. So let me ask you to bow your heads. And let's reflect upon this passage of Scripture and all of the blessings that flow from the birth of Christ. Your word. And would you let it take root in our hearts? We know that your word does not return void, but it accomplishes exactly what you want it to accomplish. And so, Lord, I have no idea what your word is going to accomplish in people's lives this morning. The seed has been sown. And so my prayer is that it falls on good soil. And Lord, that you would truly deepen our joy this Christmas. You truly would grant us the the peace that passes understanding this Christmas. You would truly let us live in the freedom of what it means to have the shackles of sin destroyed in our lives. Lord, there may be some in this room that just need a mighty God, Jesus, to fight their battles for them. There may be some in this room that need direction. They need a counselor. They don't know where to go. There may be some that just need a a loving protector, a refuge. There may be some that just need to bow before Jesus is king. Help us to find by your grace, Lord, true, authentic, bona fide, freedom, joy, peace, security, only in Jesus as our king. Jesus, you are a prince of peace. So we submit to you, we love you, we worship you. We bow before you. I just pray a special prayer, Lord, for those Father, I just pray a special prayer for those in this room that I know have lost a loved one this year. And as Christmas approaches, it's going to be a hard time of year. Would you grant a special measure of grace and peace beyond measure to those? Let them know the love of Christ in a way that cannot even be explained. Lord, help us as a church family to surround those. It's been a tough year, 2016, for many. But Father, you're good and you're gracious. And we just claim the promise that the peace of Christ that passes understanding will guard our hearts and minds. And the only place we can find that is in you, Jesus. Help us not to find it in any other place but you. Thank you for the blessing 
of Christmas. Thank you for your birth. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you that you're coming back again. May we truly worship you, Jesus, this Christmas season. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.